We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Got a great Monday show for you. Checked in with Bracken Ray to do a... Uh, our normal Sunday basketball check-in. Less Ole Miss, more so around the SEC, the Penny Hardaway stuff from last week, who's been a surprise in the conference, who's kind of that next tier behind Auburn. A lot of different stuff, and then some big picture Ole Miss stuff as uh, conversation gets a little redundant when it comes to the current version of this Ole Miss basketball team as the Rebels lose by 18 in Starkville on Saturday night and face a three-game week. Probably have already tipped off by the time most of you are listening to this on Monday night against Florida. So a lot of basketball stuff, and then we'll get to some NFL off the top and what was a pretty crazy NFL wildcard weekend. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Check these guys out. Saw over the weekend Skybox was just toying with some NFL modeling, and uh, their modeling went 5-1 and one and nearly had a 6-0 and oh sweep. They had 2-1 and one free play winners on Sunday. You need to check these guys out. They are printing money. Uh, they're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, whether that's month-long, season-long, no matter what sport you prefer. I'd recommend just going with the year-long all-sports pass. It is going to pay for itself. And then some, check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. It's the most consistent way to, to profit in wagering. You're not going to do it off your own knowledge and your own brain. None of us do. That's why casinos are not built on losses. You need the professionals to help you out. And Skybox will deliver you to profit more consistently than anyone else. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. And you'll get 20% off any purchase, and that'll let them, let them know we sent you. So please use the promo code. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Rights subscriber. That's rippyrights.substack.com. Type in your email address. You get a free news, newsletter from me three to five times a week and discounted meats. Right now it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Go, go in, show and prove a subscription. He'll get you set up. And then go find your own favorites at LB's. It's the best place in Mississippi to get meat. About to be a second location down there in the Jackson area out in Glugstadt. 
which is a treat to everyone across the Magnolia State. But uh, go see him in Oxford. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. There's all kinds of fresh seafood, sausages, love the filet burgers, ribeye sausage, all kinds of different cuts. Check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All right, couple football thoughts off the top before we get to Bracken Ray's interview. What a divisional round weekend in the NFL. What a day yesterday. Four games that came down to the last play, which I don't think has ever happened before in any round of the NFL playoffs, at least not that I can remember. I have no idea if it's the best weekend of football ever. I find it hilarious. We're always trying to quantify things in the most ridiculous way possible. Like, is yesterday's Bills-Chiefs game the best game ever? That's the best weekend of football ever. How in the world is anybody supposed to quantify that? Like, I don't understand it. It was awesome. I would just enjoy it for what, uh, for what it is. But uh, I saw one thing that stuck out in particular that I wanted to get to was the NFL overtime rules thing. So if you've been living under a rock yesterday, Bill's Chiefs game just goes absolutely bananas in the final two minutes. Mahomes uses thir- need, needed just 13 seconds to get into pretty easy field goal range after a ridiculous Josh Allen drive, the second ridiculous Josh Allen drive in about 90 seconds. And it goes into overtime. And I don't know about you guys, but I was in the same boat to where I was like, well, this sucks. The coin toss is going to decide this. And the, what do you know, the Chiefs won the toss, went all the way down the field, scored a touchdown, and the game was over without Josh Allen ever getting the chance to possess the football in overtime and without the Kansas City Chiefs defense ever having to play defense in overtime, which predictably produced some pretty highly opinionated, heavily opinionated takes about NFL overtime rules. Most of them, like any other take, pretty slanted to whatever said person's opinion is without taking the full context of the situation into account. And it was predominantly, up from everything I read into about 80%, the NFL overtime rules are awful. It just ruined the greatest game in NFL history. And then you, of course, always had the smaller dissenting opinion of the NFL overtime rules are fine. The Bills should have gotten a stop. Stop complaining about the rules crowd. Uh, Colin Cowherd among them, predictably. I think I saw Lewis Riddick in there as well. Don't complain, play good defense or something like that. Very, very original stuff. Um, I'm not really sure if I'll ever possess the brilliance of either one of those two or on either side of this to come up with a take like that. My opinion on the whole thing was both things are absolutely true. The NFL overtime rules kind of stink. Like, yesterday's game, everything the NFL's done in the last 20 years has been uh, – last 20 years is a little strong. Last 10 years is to try to produce more offense. One, make the game safer, and two, try to produce more offense. Sometimes those two things work hand-in-hand, hand, where basically it's about as quarterback-friendly of a time to play quarterback in the NFL as there's ever been. And I mean, you're seeing it right now with the teams remaining in the playoffs. Jimmy G probably being the one slight exception. If you got a really good quarterback – you're going to have a chance and you're probably going to be there towards the end in the NFL. So with all of that in mind, they've shifted everything for fantasy and points and offense and protecting the quarterback and all of that. Yet the overtime rule completely contradicts that. Like, I don't understand how you can promote offense to the degree that the NFL has for the last decade, but have an overtime rule to where if the first offense does the offense that gets the ball first does its job, the second offense does it, get a chance to respond or the opposing offense doesn't get a chance to respond. That part of it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm sure I was far from the only one that as soon as they did the coin toss yesterday, the bills picked tails, it flipped on heads and Kansas city won the toss. You're sitting there thinking this game's over. I was hoping that wasn't the case. I was hoping I didn't really have a rooting interest in the game. 
aside from, you know, Neil's picks and then Greg and I's picks on Friday. But, like, I didn't really care that much about that. But I was rooting for the Bills to get a stop just because I didn't think a football game should end that way. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But at the same time, should the Bills have gotten a stop if they wanted a chance to win? Sure. By, you know, the letter of the rule, they had a chance to get a stop. They didn't. I think that take is a little bit disingenuous because you just had 25 points scored in the final two minutes of the game. Neither team could stop each other. Both teams were gassed. And so I don't understand the whole, well, they should have stopped them take. Well, the Chiefs didn't get a stop for the final 12 minutes of the game, but their defense was exonerated because they fell on the right side of the coin flip and the right side of how regulation shook out. So I didn't really understand that. Don't really understand that aspect of it either. If you're saying the Bills should have gotten a stop, well, why are the Chiefs not required to get a stop either? It just doesn't make any sense with the competitive spirit of football. But I also get that argument. I also think that probably the better way to argue it if you're pro NFL overtime rules, which I think is a weird place to be, and anti-people complaining about the Bills not getting a chance, is you should probably argue the fact that is that the Bills played terrible defense in the final 13 seconds. And the fact that they couldn't get a stop or at least not allow them to get what that's 25 plus 15 to 40-ish yards in you know stopped them the Chiefs from getting 40-ish yards in 13 seconds is really where this game was lost and look I get it Kansas City had two timeouts but you're basically I mean you basically needed an incompletion or three tackles because the third one they're not getting it off right and they couldn't do it. I didn't understand it. I thought it was a great play call by the Chiefs. They get the screen to the hill. I'm not sure there's any other skilled position player in the NFL other than Tyreek Hill that can pick up the 19 yards or whatever it was on that first play um, that as quickly as he did to leave it with eight seconds left. Um, it, classic uh, conspiracy theory guy. It's seven seconds, and they had one second left. Didn't really end up making a difference. And then you had the Mahomes uh pass to Travis Kelsey where you can hear him at the line of scrimmage saying do it before so that's clearly something they saw in the Buffalo defense but Buffalo didn't play very good defense and didn't handle that last 13 seconds well at all because I get it there I think some of this is the Tyreek Hill effect I think they were terrified of Tyreek Hill the entire game and in a situation where you didn't really need to play all of your guys as far back as they did in the secondary I think they're so scared of Tyreek Hill and so scared of him getting back and them losing the game in regulation on some sort of miracle. Um, I think that played into their strategy. I, I think you'd be uh, – I think I don't think you'd ever get them to admit that, but that had to be part of what played in it. But I guess my point is you basically needed two incompletions because at 13 seconds left, you're only getting three plays off. Like, that's, that's it. You're going to get two passes if you're really, really good about it and then a field goal with Kansas City having all three timeouts left. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why they played so far back. It's also two great play calls by – the Kansas City Chiefs, and my God, Patrick Mahomes, 13 seconds is still enough time for him to send a game into overtime when he's down three. Just sort of ridiculous. I don't think there's another player on earth um, that could do that. I think the Bills beat every other football team in the NFL yesterday except for the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. But anyway, that's really, if you're the whole overtime rule, if your overtime rules are fine, guy, you should probably point to that more so than, well, they didn't get a stop. Well, I mean, did you see the Bills' defense in overtime? It was quite cold outside. And their defensive side of the ball looked like a, just a gigantic mist of fog because those guys are breathing so hard. Everyone was gassed, and no one was stopping anyone. The last stop the Chiefs defense got was with, like, 11.58 to go in the game, and that coincidentally came about 90 seconds to two minutes before the Bills got their last stop of the game. So I don't understand the overtime rules. The two sides of, I guess, the collective debate were interesting. I saw one random guy arguing with Chase about how the rules are fine and 
The Bills should have just stopped them. I, I didn't know those people existed. I don't understand why you would want in football and particularly this offensively friendly version of football that we play now, why you wouldn't want both offenses to get the football at least once in your overtime setup. That just doesn't seem to jive with everything else the NFL is doing. And, you know, if there's one game that would force them to change the rule, I think it would be this one. And, you know, a lot of people are forgetting the fact that Kansas City fans, they probably don't like this rule. Remember, they got beat on it three years ago in that ridiculous uh, AFC championship game between Tom Brady and the Patriots and Patrick Mahomes when he was not a rookie, but his first year as the starter in Kansas City, his second year in the NFL. Patriots win the toss, Brady puts together a ridiculous drive, and boom, Patriots go to the Super Bowl. So, like, I don't think either side involved in this is pro the rule. I don't understand it. I think it's a bad rule, but I can also understand that the Bills did have a chance to stop them and didn't do it. You just saw two quarterbacks in that game. It was weird. That game had a lull to it for about two quarters, and then two guys really, like, unlike anything I've ever seen, taking their collect their each of their respective games up into, on an individual level that I, to a level I've never seen over the final quarter, that was really just terrific stuff from both Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. Josh Allen, we've been saying it here for a couple of weeks now. It is uh, probably the greatest show in football right now. And, the you know, 1A, 1B, Mahomes is definitely the, uh, the other one in that conversation. Just a ridiculous game from Josh Allen. And uh, it's a shame he wasn't able to touch the football. And that's another part of it. Like, yesterday was a – that game was a storybook game. That's one you'll remember from the ages. And it just kind of feels wrong that it ended without the other quarterback having the all-time performance ever getting a chance to touch the football. It was two guys that were playing out of their mind, and one of them, only one of them got a chance to touch the ball in overtime because of a coin flip. So it was predictable, like the discourse, I guess, online or everything I read this morning regarding the overtime rule and – should have played better versus it's the worst rule ever. I don't think it's the worst rule ever, but it really doesn't make any sense. And it, it's weird how long it takes, t- takes things to change in sports to even just get to a degree that seems competent and makes sense. Remember for forever, the NFL overtime rule is where whoever got the football first got into field goal range, kicked it, and the game was over. Remember, we spent decades and decades and decades doing that whole sham over and over again. And then it finally got changed, and it's really not much better. I don't understand in the playoffs why you wouldn't just play one more quarter. I I get the regular season. The reason the overtime rule is in place is because the NFL is a very efficient product on top of being a very entertaining product. Those games get done in three hours and change. They don't really want those things lasting much more than three hours. That's why you have noon kickoffs on a normal NFL Sunday, a couple 305s, and a couple 325s. It's a pretty well-run, well-oiled machine in terms of time efficiency. And it's a safety thing. I don't think they want those guys playing, you know, a whole, an, an entire fifth quarter of football over a 16-game, 17-game regular season. And so, like, if you want to keep that overtime rule for the regular season to get the games done in a timely manner, then I'm perfectly fine with that. It certainly makes sense. But in the playoffs, on that stage, particularly, you could not have scripted that any better between the quarterbacks involved, the two teams, the way that game went. I don't really think you need to get in and out of there right in three hours. I, I think that you probably just play the extra quarter and let you know it be decided by both quarterbacks playing out of their mind. Which one blinks first? Which one makes a mistake? That's the way that game, in my opinion, should have ended yesterday. But, uh, again, I get both sides of it. I just hope the rule changes. And uh, that, was, uh, that was one hell of a football game that unfortunately ended in a very predictable manner because, like I said, I can't be the only one out there who – 
saw the coin flip, the Chiefs celebrate. You knew that thing was over. There's just – I mean, no one was getting stopped. The Bills had forced, what, one punt in the second half? Yeah, one punt in the second half and only two for the entire game, unless I missed one. That's – I mean, yes, you should play better defense, but it's hard to stop Patrick Mahomes when you're, you know, fully rested, much less gas at the end of a 60-minute game where you're trying to go get one more stop. I just don't think that's a great way to end the game. I won't belabor the point on that. Elsewhere, they'd be awesome games. Like, that one overshadowed three pretty incredible finishes. Um, I don't really have much on the whole uh, Packers thing. That was so bizarre that San Francisco went into Lambeau Field and beat Aaron Rodgers uh, without an offensive touchdown. Saw a bunch of uh, very original uh, Aaron Rodgers immunized from the playoffs vaccine content. That's awesome stuff. That takes a ton of brain power to come up with and I uh, hope everyone got their collective internet pat on the back for that one. But aside from that, really bad. Aaron Rodgers' postseason record is really bad. He's 11 and 10. He has the same amount of um, NFC championship and AFC championship, or excuse me, NFC championship. Rodgers has never played in the AFC. Might be coming, who knows? NFC championship appearances over the last five years is Blake Bortles. Hell, Rodgers has the same amount of playoff wins as Blake Bortles since 2017. It's really bizarre because, you know, as much as focus was on Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes yesterday and the two best quarterbacks in football, I mean, you're living in the moment and being sort of short-sighted if you're not including Aaron Rodgers, the third in there. He had moments this year where it's like, how do you stop this? He, he is absolutely – those are the three. I think there's three quarterbacks doing this at a different level right now in professional football. And it's those three with Rodgers included in there. I just don't understand the playoff part of it. I, it, it doesn't really make any sense to me how that seems to continue to um, continue to happen. It just, I don't know. It doesn't add up. I, I would, I mean, the San Francisco's defense played an incredible football game, but the, I feel even in the snow and even in that weather, the Green Bay offense could only muster one touchdown that entire game. I would have never guessed or wagered on that in a million years. I thought it was going to take a, shootout-ish game by committee from San Francisco's offense via running the football and Jimmy Garoppolo not having his usual Jimmy Garoppolo mistake uh, somewhere mixed in. And that didn't happen at all. He had the Jimmy Garoppolo mistake with that interception it laid in the first half. And it didn't matter because they were the Packers were sloppy on special teams and pretty, pretty putrid offensively. Uh, Titans really don't want to talk about it. That one sucked. They sacked Joe Burrow nine times. Joe Burrow did not throw a touchdown, and the Titans lost the game. Just an incredibly poor performance by Ryan Tannehill, and I like Ryan Tannehill. It's been nice, but you now look up, and you're the Titans. Your window's closing a little bit just from an overall roster standpoint, and you look around in the AFC. You have Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, and you're trying to get to a Super Bowl in a year in a year out base with Ryan Tannehill. Don't like their odds on that. Congrats to Joe Burrow and the Bengals, though. Cincinnati, terrific sports town. Those guys, uh, that fan base endures some really dumb and really cheap ownership. So uh, they deserve it. And I, uh, I, uh, I'm a, I like the Joe Burrow story. I know Neil's been on that as well. Uh, I think it's cool. I'm a Joe Burrow fan. Just suck to watch the Titans be the better team for about two and a half quarters and then uh, ultimately pee down their leg because that was probably their best shot at winning a Super Bowl over the course of the next decade. It's so hard to get the one seed now. You were basically had to win two games at home to get to the Super Bowl, and you lost to a quarterback in his second year despite sacking him nine times. Go Titans. Uh, other game. Really wasn't a great game. Rams, Bucks, 
was uh, not really a great game for about three quarters there. And then, of course, Tom Brady, as always, when he was down 27-3, I didn't think he was out of it. I didn't think they had the horses to come back this time, but I was kind of sitting there thinking, eh, Tom Brady, this is still probably going to get close. Didn't think it would get as close as uh, it did. Two Cam Akers fumbles, one crushing one late. Uh, didn't help with that one. But uh, Rams are good. I, th- I mean, the Rams are now one win away, from, uh, two wins away from winning the Super Bowl, and they will not have to leave their building to do so. That's a great place to be. We're going to get Rams Niners round three next week. But, uh, you know, Matthew Stafford, all those years in Detroit, was it, was it more on the organization? Was it more on Stafford? You probably knew it was partially the organization, but could Stafford actually win in the playoffs and win when it mattered? Um, he made one hell of a throw after his team was collectively choking that game away. A little fault of uh, Stafford's. I thought he was pretty good for most of that game. Makes an incredible throw to Cooper Cup, who the Bucks decided to leave in single coverage and blitz after they just miraculously had tied the game with a handful of seconds left in the game they had no business being in. I really didn't understand that one because, I mean, that thing goes to overtime and Brady gets the football first. I think the Rams' defense is great, but you stopping him with all that on the line? I don't think so. And so I just can't believe they didn't play it a little more conservatively and try to get the overtime. But uh, credit to Stafford. That's another cool story. Guy, you know, toils away for a decade in a bad organization – get some stability around him, and now he's one win away from the Super Bowl. So two terrific games next week. The one favor I will ask is of Joe Burrow, and please, God, go win that game next week so I don't have to watch any Jackson Mahomes and Brittany Mahomes content. I don't know if anyone saw that yesterday, just the latest chapter in a very nauseating existence for those two. But anyway, four terrific games. Don't love the overtime rule, and looking forward to two more next week. The NFL is the best. Here is Bracken Ray's interview on the SEC, Ole Miss, Penny Hardaway, and, uh, and more. All right, we now welcome on former Andy Kennedy staffer Bracken Ray to discuss a little bit of Ole Miss, although I'm not sure how much there's worth discussing at this point, um, some SEC, and then uh, some Penny Hardaway bashing. Or I shouldn't put words in your mouth. I'll probably crush him pretty good. What's up, man? Man, not a whole lot. Just a lot of NFL this weekend and some college basketball too, so I'm it's only January and I'm already tired of this cold weather. So kind of ready for it to heat back up. Yeah. It's uh, it's actually kind of nice out today in Dallas, but last, last like three days in a row, it's been twenties, low thirties. Uh, not a, not a huge fan of the cold. I prefer weather that you can play golf in. So uh, I'm right there with you on that. We did have an anniversary of sorts over the weekend. The only story I recycle, the most famous assist of all time, which uh, belongs to you. <laughs> Did that bring back any uh, nostalgia? Yeah, a little bit. I love the I love the read every year, and love that the reach seems to increase every time <laughs> you do it every year. But you know, but like the funniest part about that was um, <laughs> our coach was so pissed off about that <laughs> stuff the whole time. Like the the funny part that you kind of have to just know is that it drove our coach crazy. That the whole suit section's like chanting the which. That, that was the part that w- was – yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, sorry, cut out for a second. Go ahead. No, that was the part that uh, was always the funniest to me when that would happen. Yeah, he'd, he'd be grouchy by the time I went in the game. I can't say I blame him. Like, full full context, if you'll remember back uh, back to a uh, much simpler time, I played that year, and then I had gotten a, uh, a wee bit of trouble before the season started. Which, I, I do, I do recall that. Yeah. yeah. So there was, uh, it wasn't anything major, but um, 
I did not was any value. He had no problem uh, handing down a uh, small suspension to me, but I also cost him his starting point guard. I won't dive into too many. <laughs> hey, hey, the the, the other gal, the other gal on this podcast minutes increased when that happened. So that's right. You know, I was really just doing you a favor um, that year. You were in the rotation. You are not a normal mop-up duty guy, but look, private school hoops. There's only so many people on the teams. No matter how many, uh, no matter how no matter how many points you're up, someone has to uh, fill the minutes. Besides, uh, besides the sideshow that I was, but yes, uh, our coach was not a fan of this. I can I don't can't really say I blame him because again, got his starting point guard suspended for a game, and then on top of that, I was the show. He coaches the team to a huge lead, and really the in, the real game had not begun. I could see why he did not um enjoy that one but uh what a what just a raucous night that was uh probably the only court storming for a 40 point game in hoops history I'll go out on that one yeah no doubt no doubt and uh a little known fact about you is you were the youngest uh assistant coach ever in MAIS history too the year before that is correct he would have probably uh preferred me stay as a student assistant (laughs) rather than give me some sneakers and suit up given what ensued but just a wild night and a perfectly delivered pass to the uh, to the one shot I made that night. So uh, you will always have that piece of history. Hopefully, we can get like a docu series rolling here in the next couple of years. I'll uh, I'll be in contact with some different uh, maybe Netflix something like that. So uh, keep your ears out for that one. I think this is definitely like thirty for thirty material. If you look at how it starts and how it in- ends, so maybe we've got some connections over there. We can make that happen. Yeah, I just need to get Bill Simmons' email, and I'm sure he will eat that up as soon as I put the story in front of him. What was not noteworthy over the weekend was Ole Miss's performance in Starkville. The Rebels, uh, the Rebels lose 78 to 60, and really, it wasn't the game itself. It's this week they lose by 25 at home to a seven and nine Missouri team, who I think had a net in the 200s at the time. Just. I mean, if there was going to be a bottoming out, it, it feels like this. I know they didn't play well at A&M, but they had a valiant effort against Auburn, which we discussed last week. This feels like a uh, – I don't even know if you call it a rubber meets the road moment, but, like, it can't get much worse than this, right? Yeah, and, you know, I kind of think this week, too, so they have three games in either, like, five or six days this week um, because you've got your two SECs and then the Big 12 deal or whatever. But this kind of feels – take up with all, uh, Florida is the Monday one in, right in there, too, right? That's, that's right, yeah. Um, this kind of feels like the week to see, like, how how bad it's going to get, so to speak, because, you know, if you can win one of these this week, all right, you know, you just – Keep doing what you're doing. Try to keep the locker room together. Keep just fighting. But, you know, if you go 0 for 3 this week, it's it's really hard in that situation, just complete transparency of, you know, being 1-7 and seven in the SEC with another non-conference loss. I mean, it, it's hard to see what you're playing for there. So, I think this week's really important. But, you know, uh, Missouri State, there's a lot of stuff we could get into here. I think just keeping it high level – you're getting out-rebounded pretty bad at this point now, too, which was not something I thought going into this season would be a huge problem for this team. Um, and, you know, another thing as well is offensively no paint touches at all because they're not able to get the ball in the lane, either from post-ISOs or just off the bounce as well. But, you know, a tough week this week. That Missouri loss was one of the most demoralizing that I've seen in a while. Um, we've talked about Western Kentucky at the time, and – you know, that we said that that may have been one of the worst losses that we've seen 
since we've kept up with it. And I think Missouri now is up there as well because they were in the, you know, 200s at the time when you lose to them um, and it's at home. So pretty tough week for this group. I thought they played okay in the first half, um, but outside of that three pretty bad halves of basketball um, this past week. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. You hit it on a couple of different topics I wanted to get to there as well. Keeping it well, one more like high level thing before we kind of get into what 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 went wrong. You've been in you've been on you've been on a staff with teams that were good, and you've also been on staffs for teams that struggled. And then you were on staff, obviously, AK's last year, where before before the AK thing happened and like that spiraled, and he ended up you know announcing that he wouldn't return, and then he didn't stay on the bench for the last couple of games. Before that happened. You, I believe Ole Miss was like three and two or two and two in the SEC at one point, but it just felt like a struggle. We've talked about this before at the overtime losses. Like, I guess what I'm getting at is how do you, what does it be, what is it like having to come to work every day and kind of trying to keep things together when that situation was a little different because it felt like the weight of the world in AK's job security was more what was bogging the team down rather than just yeah. losing all of the time because they had an okay record before, like I said, that spiraled. Like, what is it like, like clocking into work every day and trying to keep everything together? It's got to be tough. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it can be, you know, pretty depressing. But, you know, just how we've talked before about, hey, when you're up or down 12 in a game, you're still in it. If a coach – and obviously at this point, like, there's – postseason is not a thing. But from your kind of delivery and your mannerisms, especially for the assistant coaches because they're really – important in keeping the locker room together you can't let these players see that at all right just like um you know players if we're being real like some of these dudes are probably getting hit up by other staffs right now right and that happens kind of regardless of if you're winning or losing that is probably the same thing you know with coaches too as well so the big thing is like when you're uh, around your players you just you got to kind of keep that body language pretty high so because these kids can read you and you don't want to, you don't want to lose the locker room. That's when things really start bottoming out. And to be completely transparent, that happened, you know, in the 17, 18 uh, year. Yeah, it did. And like that one, like that, that one in like fairness was kind of caused by, we want to get really direct here, a, a chancellor. Like, like he like, he, he felt like he lit that fuse even before it happened. Like you could sense, I remember writing in November, and maybe it was early December after like one of the first overtime losses, but point being still very early in the year, it just felt like a fuse that was waiting to be lit. And like that one had a fuse like placed in there by external forces, which we don't have to get into all that, but like that one was, uh, that one didn't feel like just straight a product of losing. Right. And like, I feel like when you're coming in and you're getting killed every day, that can make yeah. it even tougher. Like you mentioned like postseason not being a thing, keeping a kid together. Like, what value can a win at, again, at home against like Florida on Monday just do for like morale and keeping it together? Like, because all your postseason aspirations are out the window. But like, is there a ton of value in winning a game and just having something to feel good about to kind of keep things together at least for a few more weeks? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously winning helps. Um, and it's tough. I mean, we had a few kind of in there. I think we won five conference games that year, maybe, uh, but most of them were like earlier in the conference slate. Right. Um, and so, you know, it just kind of, it keeps good energy and good mojo. Like you said, you know, from a postseason standpoint, there's not really, you don't see the light for that anymore. So it's just kind of keeping it. And I think it's also big for the younger guys, right? You're trying to build off of this group. Um, Ruffin, Morell, 
Breakfield, you know, those guys being able to find ways to win, you want for those guys, you know, that are going to be at, at the head of your program here in a couple of years, kind of are now, but you want those guys to play in different kind of games. You want to know, you want to see what happens when adversity hits them. You want them to experience winning. Those kinds of things, I think, with winning is super important for development of some of your underclassmen. Well said on that note. As far as what happened, you and I were texting throughout the uh, throughout the Missouri game on yeah. Tuesday night, I guess that was. And it goes back to the question that I've written about this a couple of times and posed it, uh, I guess, on podcast here. I guess we discussed this a little bit last week. But, you know, even with Joyner out and Crowley at least being another ball hander, I always go back to, like, should it be this bad offensively? And that was as bad an offensive performance as they've had this year. Unfortunately, they've had a couple that look similar to them. And I'm always hesitant to, like, second-guess um, – X's and O's part of it in terms of what they run on offense. We talked a little bit about the motion and dribble weave and all that last year, but it doesn't yeah. feel like they're they're doing anything to help themselves when you have like when you lose a leading scorer. And again, this could be a product of me not knowing what I'm watching. But another thing yeah. I frequently write down throughout the year, they don't feel like they screen a whole lot of dudes. They go through the motion of screening, but like I don't, they don't feel like they actually hit anyone. And I know that's a small thing, but I'm curious just what you see offensively. Like, are they doing themselves any favors with the shorthanded lineup they have? Yeah, you're right. And so what, what we've talked about in the past couple of weeks is more of, hey, the personnel issues that this team has that is not creating offensive success. Uh, I won't go too much in the weeds on X's and O's, but what I will say kind of a high-level view is you're right on, like, some of the screens and stuff. Um, like, if you watch Auburn, they run a lot of flex action they run stuff to get guys into the paint, right? Like I said earlier, um, this team doesn't get into the paint enough. And something that um, I, I saw, I think, right after the Missouri game, analytically speaking, the, there's about 10 different uh, shots you can – shot types you can chart. Um, your Number one, your best from a points per possession standpoint is your, a basket cut. Number two is in transition. Well, 10th out of 10 is long mid-range jump shots. It averages like 0.7 points per possession. Ole Miss leads the country in long mid-range jump shots attended, attempted. Whew. I, you sent me that number over this week. That really is a staggering stat. And so just to, like, to, to clean that up, just in case like hammer the point home, when you're talking about the 10 shots – the least efficient and kind of worst ranking shots. If there's a met like this metric, the system or whatever it yep. is you got this from has 10 shots from most efficient to least efficient. That's the least efficient one. It Ole Miss leads the country in that. Correct. Correct. So, and it's in the way they do it is off of points per possession, right? So a basket cut is like 1.3 points per possession. And I think that goes to a point that we've talked about over the past couple of years is like, we thought this group would be a little more – they're good in transition, but you thought their volume would increase, and you thought that offensively um, things would change from the type of action they ran. And it, we haven't seen a whole lot of that um, from this year compared to pa the uh, past year. And the very first year, you had, real, you had three good, really good players, right? So that helped, and you're new to the system, you're new to the league, people hadn't scouted against that. Um, a ton. So, yeah, anal so the long mid-range jump shot is 10th. Is it's, it's the least effective taken. I think part of that is action. 
um, of what they're running. But second is just like some of these guys shouldn't have the green light to shoot some of these shots that aren't very effective as well. So that's kind of what that looks like. And you, you can see some of it. The first thing that popped into my mind when you read that stat just a second ago was how many possessions that they had where they haven't – I mean, how many times have you seen it to where they've not really been able to get a whole lot going on a given possession, and then you get into that seven, eight-second range left in the shot clock. Well, now you just need someone to go make a play, which goes back to what we talked about. They just don't have many bucket getters and shot clock. Right. And then you get it to whomever that is, which is usually Ruffin or someone else. Sometimes it just ha- just happens to be like – who's standing nearest to the basketball, they drive, can't get past the guy, and then you throw something up from like 12 to 15 feet. Like that was the picture in my mind when you first read that stat to where like some of the dysfunction leads to them just having to scramble and then you don't have the creator that can actually get to the rim and you end up throwing up a bad inefficient shot. Yeah, you're exactly right. If you, Sometimes, you know, if, if you've got players like Auburn does, you can, um, you can afford to – have that happen more and somebody just go make a play but this group doesn't have that that right now um and even for Jarkel like his positive um attributes it's not really beating people off the bounce right like he's actually he started to come on as a decent spot shooter uh he's not going to blow by people so Ruffin's the guy who's doing that at a pretty good level right now um and he definitely you know there's a lot of things negatively can take with this team but a lot of really bright signs from him. I've been impressed with him, especially coming off the injury. Just from a rhythm standpoint, that can really mess with you. Um, and he kind of had two different things happen in the fall semester. So I've been pretty impressive with, impressed with what he's been able to do uh, so far here the past month or so. That's the other aspect of this from a big picture standpoint, because I feel like that's kind of what most people are discussing at this point with regard to this team, because this year is what it is. Neil's done a good job of pointing this out, and I don't feel like it's talked about enough, which is just really kind of the way it goes when you're losing. But there is like a nice young core there, right, with Brakefield and Ruffin and Morell. Like they've got a couple of pieces. Just the, it doesn't feel like, one, they're young at that, po- in that stretch. And right now, you know, you're without two guys that are pretty important. But there is like a nice young core there. And I guess like if you're kind of giving the, I guess, pro long – term argument is is that's enough to kind of build around don't you think it's just a matter of more efficiently and better building the roster kind of around those four going forward or around those three yeah I mean absolutely I think that there's kind of two components of this right you got to hit the transfer portal aggressively this offseason I'm talking you know four or five people um is what's needed because in my opinion, um, and I know it was, it was fun. They gave us some good minutes in that little four-minute stretch or so. I don't think Slatten for, – Slatten for sure is not a – you know, he's not a higher mid-major player. James White's probably a mid-major player, and Eric as well. So those are three out of the four freshmen on your group as well that aren't – they aren't SEC caliber players, at least not for right now. Um, so I think that, you know, with some of these guys – um, you've got to bring in a lot of transfers to fill some spots, and you gotta you got to go get another bucket getter, and you got to get a shooter as well. Yeah, you're exactly right on that, and I think the whole slatting thing for, the, uh, for those four or five minutes in that second half on Tuesday night kind of perfectly underscored some of the problem because yeah. you know, the way it was framed and the way that – and I get they were getting blown out, it was just like something new in a blowout of a game, but like – 
Dykes and whoever else was calling the game was kind of treating him like a walk-on, and the crowd kind of had that same energy <laughs> to it. I mean, it, if you, yeah. or I guess a more specific way to put it, they were treating him like uh, a certain private school guard in 2013. But, like, like he's a guy that they used a scholarship on, and I know he wouldn't even like right. basketball in Tennessee. I know it's a small classification, but to your point, instead of going harder in the portal or getting another guard in the portal, they used that on on high school guys. And, like, I get yep. it. They were pretty deep in the bench at that point. But, you know, all respect to John McBride, it's not like that's who was out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, no doubt. I, I think you made a great point on, hey, they went and got Tom Fagan, and we were cool with it because they thought that was best available. But they needed to fill a spot for a shooter. And, you know, Grant, Grant Slatton, he's not – you know, I don't want to kill the kid, but he I'm not sure he's a D1 guy, right. you know, from an evaluation standpoint. And so, um, and it, and, you know, the, the guy that um, they had committed for a really long time, uh, Nick Crass or Class, I can't remember his last name, but, you know, he's a guy right now that um, I don't know that he's committed anywhere else. I mean, he he's kind of a lot of people I've talked to is projected as more of a low major um d1 guy they they held on to him for a pretty long time and then eventually cut the cord but you know some of these guys from an eval standpoint that maybe they view as like a, a project i just don't know that you know that's the best alternative when you can go out to the portal and plug and play some spots as well absolutely what do you attribute some of that to them having the high school guys they've gotten and look he's had some good ones right you know he gets Ruffin, he gets morell so it hasn't been all bad from a high school right. recruiting standpoint, but what do you attribute the amount of players that aren't necessarily widely seen as, you know, like you said, high major players just in general, I'm not even talking about specific to the three guys this year or Slatten or whomever, just like, is that him trying to get out of like habits formed over, you know, almost two decades at middle Tennessee? Like why, why do you think that's happening when, you know, there at least are better players available that they could realistically get? Well, here's kind of what this goes down to. I, I've said it before, but they've recruited better than they've evaluated, and they've been able to go up against some P5s and win battles. But most people that have coached at Ole Miss in the past think that you can do that, but you also have to go find some diamonds in the rough as well, right? Like you got to go get some guys that you're, you're kind of finding this diamond in the rough, and if you offer him, you're going to get him because maybe you're his best offer. Kermit was known to be a really good evaluator at middle. It was one of his biggest strengths. That has not carried over to the SEC level here as well. And, you know, I think a thing that's tough too is even some of these kids that they missed on that they really liked are not having great seasons. Brandon Hutfield-Hatley was one of, like, the guys. You know, he was up there with Breakfield, DJ Jeffries, rough and like probably top three or four guys most sought after in the four-year tenure of Kermit he averages like three a game at Tennessee right now right you know so um you know so, some of these guys I think this all has come down to evals and it's fixable you just only get so many you know I use this with Lane Kiffin it's analogy with Lane Kiffin in the portal in football a lot and with staff changes as well, like it, it's fixable, right? Like you can start hitting on them, but you only get so many plate appearances and so many swings at it before, you know, they're going to take the bat out of your hands and give it to someone else. So like that part yeah. can change. It's just a matter of if it does. And I think that kind of probably puts a, 
pretty good bow on what we were discussing in terms of big picture because that's at the end of the day they're going to have to build the roster better at that point the one thing I was, was talking we, Colin and I did a baseball preview on Thursday and we just happened to start talking a little hoops at the top and he posed a question I hadn't necessarily thought about do you put anything into the fact that KJ Buffin is playing well at um at UAB and then look like I know Bryce Williams wasn't perfect but he's still playing pretty major minutes I don't know if he starts or not for the second year in a row on an Oklahoma State team that's not terrible by any stretch it was pretty good last year I know uh, the <laughs> Cade Cunningham had a lot to do with that but they have had a couple cool. guys that have been processed that have had success elsewhere do you put anything into that or do you think those guys just found better circumstances you know, and weren't a fit at Ole Miss. What do you, like, see when you yeah. see Williams do playing okay and playing pretty well? Yeah, I think uh, the two situations between those two are different. Um, I think for Bryce Williams, that was a better fit. And he's one of these guys that I think he probably um, responds to – uh, coaching Mike over at Oklahoma State, like the way that he coaches a little more players first. Some of these guys and, you know, the, you know Kermit rods guys pretty hard, and it, that has worked a lot in his career. The issue is when you start losing, you're getting rode pretty hard by your coach. That can be a tough thing. For KJ, I think it's this simple. It's a completely different situation. I think KJ is an SEC reserve or a mid-major starter. That's what he avows at. And so, you know, Ole Miss was maybe needing to get more out of him at times, and that's not what he originally was there for. I mean, he originally committed to middle. Um, when he went to UAB, that seemed like a really good fit for him because that's his level of game. He, he can't be a guy that's playing 30 minutes a game at the SEC level, and you expect him to be really good there. Um, you know, he had some good games and some good times at Ole Miss too, but I think just from a fit, from a talent standpoint, that's the that's the league he should be on. Yeah, you're right. It's it's fascinating too. He was a fascinating player because he showed like flashes of like actually kind of going up a level from kind of. I mean, you pegged him pretty accurately there, right? Like that's kind of him to a T. But like he showed some really nice flashes at times. He just could never put it consistently together. Um. Yeah. On Saturday, I mean, that game I didn't even actually end up watching the second half. I just kind of flipped over to football and I was like, this just kind of is what it is. Like you said, I didn't think they played terrible in the first half. That was just a product of them being shorthanded offensively. And then they got crushed on the glass. And that was really the part I wanted yeah. to get to with you. Why do you think that's happening? Like Robert Allen, I know he makes a difference. I know he's had some, you know, a veteran presence. I know he's a captain. Like I get all of that. But I didn't think they'd had tr this much trouble rebounding without Allen either. Why do you think that's happening? What are you seeing there? Yeah, I mean, I think Allen was a big piece to it. Um, I think they – expected to get maybe a little bit more out of their front court um, going into the season. And then, um, you know, with their back court, they just don't have a lot of like rebounding guards as well from a per personnel standpoint. Um, and so I don't think that there's any formula or schematic thing from rebounding. I, I think it's all personnel there. Um, and they're, look, they're pretty, they're pretty um, thin in the front court because if you think about it, Sammy Hunter, who is playing a little bit right now, he's kind of like this finesse guy, and that is not what this team needs him to be. So you kind of subtract him from the front court, and it's really Brakefield and Nas Brooks, and that's literally all you have there. So that, that's another issue to it as well. Um, they would like Sammy Hunter to be 
a little more takeover mode. And I think, you know, Brakefield's given, um, you know, he, he's had a, he's had a solid season so far. There are definitely things he can improve upon, but his motor's not fantastic. So I think that's another thing they'd like to get out of him as well. He's an interesting case because you kind of heard about him for a couple of years now to where like, I mean, I think the way it's always been described to me is like he has it, like he has, I guess, the tools, just hasn't put it together. Like, do you still feel the same way about Sammy Hunter? Because, like, they could have, even with uh, a healthy Robert Allen, they would have seriously benefited from him kind of taking a jump this year, and it just hasn't really happened yet. But, like, has your thoughts changed on what he is versus what he can be at all? No, not really. I mean, he, he's another guy that I think he's playing a, uh, a league up. Um, also, AC as well. Like, this is not they – sh- they're more mid-major guys as well from what they really pan out at. But Sammy Hunter ha- has some potential that he's not reaching, but he plays to finesse from, right. from, his, from how his game is. So that's the really frustrating piece is you can't even see the glimpses of it because he's not giving you what his role is supposed to be. I think that's about all um, – that's definitely as much podcast airtime as anyone will discuss from Ole Miss basketball <laughs> this week. I would just go out on a limb and say – Big, uh, big picture. Well, I mean, it is an important week for them. I guess we should wrap it up with that. You get three games. You're going to kind of see, like you said, if they, you know, kept it together or if this is going to kind of continue to slide that way for the rest of the year. And, uh, you know, three game week, two or that all three of them are at home, right? So that's uh, right. All I, at home. I, they've been pretty good at home. They haven't been great on the road or in neutral site games. So I don't know. You'll see. I think what I'll be watching for the rest of the year is just kind of some of the younger guys and who it evolves and can kind of take a step and. You know, you can kind of get a glimpse of what next year looks like from that young core standpoint that we talked about. Elsewhere in college basketball this week, we can – I can't wait any longer. We can get to the SEC stuff here in a second at the end. <laughs> Penny Hardaway in Memphis. My God, what a week that was. You said – we were, like, sent trading quotes as they were go, coming out to Twitter on Wednesday night or Thursday night, whatever that was. And then you finally found a video of it, and it was even more jarring. He goes on a profanity-laced tirade. They get housed at home by SMU. Then he goes on kind of a F-bomb tirade when asked by Jeff Calkins of the Daily Memphian, who's been the commercial for Peel, Peel for Forever, kind of the most, you know, long-tenured, respected sports writer in that market, I guess is what, what the point is there. Asked him if, he's, you know, if his thoughts have changed about whether he can get it done at Memphis, and Mem- Ed Penny just kind of lost it, told him to stop asking, you know, stupid questions, and, and went with the whole the media's dividing us thing uh, I guess we'll just start there. What did you think when you saw that? I had a million different thoughts race through my head. Well, you know, the first thing that I think about is you just try to put yourself in his shoes. Like, what the hell did he think was going to happen in that press conference? <laughs> like, because this is something I've always wondered. I should ask, you know, AKs of the world this. But, like, when you lose a game, and I know your SIDs walking with you to the press conference room, but, like, you have to be – thinking through what some of these questions are going to be asked and to just make sure you take the emotions out of it a little bit, um, you know, before, you know, because you probably are super emotional in the locker room, but you have to kind of tell yourself to tone it down a little bit before you go to the press conference. Like, what did he think was going to be asked? The, the only smidge of, like, uh, this is not me defending him at all, but the only thing that I think could have been better is I thought Calkins' question was a little too, like, closed-ended. It's, it was asked and, a dumb way. You're correct. Like, what is the guy going to say? Like, no, I don't think I can get it done here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it definitely was um, – it was close-ended, and it, it wasn't a great question. And I was listening to 
game day and there's like Billis and Greenberg and all those people. And like, what I will say is I think, Oh, there are a lot of coaches out there that would have gotten a little, uh, you know, a little snarky with how they responded to that question. Um, But what I think, you know, a, he went completely over the top on it. Um, And B there's not a coach there. Well, there's very few coaches in the country who get, the red carpet laid out to them yep. like Penny does at Memphis. And I'm like, so you finally get hit in the mouth a little bit from media because they've been, you know, playing you along this whole time and they don't really ever criticize him. And then they, they finally do this past week and he just goes, he goes nuts. And he's normally for all the faults he has, one of his strengths from both the, from, from a coaching standpoint is he's normally pretty poised. Right. If you watch him coach, he never, you know, this is the opposite of Bob Knight from, from how he coaches and his actions. So it, it was very immature, but I'll pass it the baton over to you to see your thoughts on it as well. You're dead on. I agree with you in the sense, like, so Calkins, the question's premise was fair, like kind of getting at, you know, do you think you can turn this around? That, like, that's a totally fair question, but the way it was asked was not that smart. Like, it was a poorly worded question because – I think he said like something to the effect of like, you know, have you ever like, are you starting to have any doubt as to whether you can get the job done here? And like, what do you want the guy who's paid by the school millions of dollars who works his ass off every day to turn it around? What do you think he's going to say? Like, what do you think he's like? Nah, I think we're screwed. I think we're toast. Honestly, I'm in over my head. Like, of course he's not going to say that. So and again, don't confuse that for me defending Pendy. I thought the entire thing was uh, completely ridiculous, but like the way the question was asked, like set him up for that kind of tirade because it was asked in kind of a dumb way. But like you said, what does he think the questions are going to be? Do you think someone's going to raise their hand from the commercial appeal and ask, you know, do you admire the shorthanded effort against SMU at home? Like what, what did we think the questions were going to be coming in? And that was something AK always understood. And I think part of that was him battling, uh, you know, or navigating a, fairly significant negative story early on in his career, the international incident in Cincinnati, Ohio, as he, uh, as, as it was uh, dubbed, but like, no matter how bad it got, particularly in that last year, AK always understood media's job, how it worked and its role and like why we were there. Like he may not have always loved the questions. Like we asked, some of them were dumb. Like I, 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 you could sense like annoyance sometimes, but he always got it. And that's something I always appreciated. That's why I think everyone from a media standpoint loved the guy because he was honest, he was genuine, and he kind of understood it. And when you have a coach do the whole, well, it's the media's fault thing, that to me is a telltale sign of a guy that's either one over his head, two stressed out of his mind, or three utterly clueless, and usually it's some combination of all three. And that's how I feel about Penny Hardaway. I just like when you do the whole, like, stop disrespecting me, bro, like – I don't know. That to me sounded like an AAU coach talking to like an unruly parent rather than a high major college basketball coach you know, doing a press conference after an embarrassing home loss. That's what it sounded like to me. Yeah, it, it was childish. And, uh, you know, it, it screams that he may not. Skin. But like an example of what I think a lot of coaches would have done. I don't know if you've listened after the Missouri game, but Neil asked a question to Kermit kind of along the lines of, Hey, you know, kind of you're losing streak right now. How do you keep the locker room together? Blah, blah, blah. 
and Kermit gave him a decently snarky answer, but it was like, I've been doing this 39 years. That's not something you have to worry about. Right. That kind of stuff. I think a lot of coaches would have just responded the same way to Calkins question. And I think that's, I think that's fair, right? It's like not too over the top. You get asked, your job is evaluated in a public 20 minute, you know, 15, 20 minute press conference after every game, you're going to be a little emotional on some of these sometimes. And you're, you're owed that and people can still respect you. But his was just, it was unprofessional and childish and, you know, showed that he, he has, he can't handle adversity like the rest of, you know, most college basketball coaches, especially at the P5 level can. You make a great point about the Kermit answer too, because like the question to Neil in that sense, like snarky, he's probably frustrated, but it's a fairly honest and genuine answer to where he's like, this isn't my kind of given the, this isn't my first rodeo answer. I've seen some good. I've seen some bad. Like there was some genuineness and it wasn't a terrible answer, like snark and uh, snark aside basically. And I never minded that from coaches, honestly, like when I get it, like, it is an awkward – the entire thing's an awkward setting, right? They go play this intense game for two hours on this gigantic public stage and then have to come and get peppered with questions after. And I've always tried to, like, keep – always tried to keep that in mind when I was working. So, like, when coaches would kind of, like – like, a couple of times, like um, – I'm trying to think. It wasn't necessarily ever freeze. Long ago, it could be a little snarky sometimes. I didn't mind it because I understood it. And most of the time, yeah. it was a decent answer. Like – I don't think Kermit would ever look at a question like that and say, stop disrespecting me, bro. I think that I feel pretty safe about that assumption and that, you know, in all in totality, it felt like a guy who is in completely over his head. And that's the other part of this that we've talked about a couple of times. I never got the Penny Hardaway thing. I get getting players is the name of the game in college hoops. And he does that, but like, he had never had any sort of coaching experience at the high college level. And as someone who worked in it, you know how much goes into it, how much there is to learn about running a program and all the things you have to do. This is not surprising to me. I never thought this would work out successfully. This is actually playing out exactly how I figured it would, where they're going to get a bunch of talented dudes, but it's a disjointed mess. And I guess to actually turn that into a question, is it as bad and sloppy from an on-court standpoint as like the novices us watching, like from a coach's mind, like what I would consider you having, like, is, do you watch it and do you say, do you kind of think the same things other people do? They're like, what the hell is this mess? Yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I, I'll give him just to play the other card. I'll give him just this a little bit. I think that he is um, a decent defensive coach. They do some decent stuff defensively. Offensively, they don't run good action at all. But here's the other piece not getting talked about. Have you heard about Rashid Wallace? Yes. So he just all of a sudden go- – that's also a first. I've never heard of a on-the-bench coach – just quote unquote going into an advisory role midseason. That is a that is that has to be unprecedented. And he is not allowed to physically be with their team. So he is a consultant now over Zoom. So he's like a, a mentor to these players now. And then you have Larry Brown, who I've told you this, I'll watch him while they coach. He's not he he's out of it a little bit. Like he he's not well, doing like all their excellent. Right. So they got a guy that was like a G League coach. But to bring to tie all this back together, if you're a penny of the world, and this is something that I will say, working in college basketball, a lot of head coaches, because they are too arrogant, and the second piece is, is a bittersweet thing. They're too loyal. 
they don't hire to their weaknesses enough. They like to bring their guys in or whatever the case may be. And so the issue with that is if Penny went in and got one or two really solid dudes from an X's and O's standpoint on his staff because he knows that he can recruit, it may could have had a chance. Right. But he, the guys that he's brought in there, it doesn't work well. So your assistant coach to head coaching relationship, it, it's a puzzle piece for what you're trying to get done. And I think that's true, you know, in the business world as well. Like you got to hire to your weaknesses. If you're not a good people person, you got to hire people under you that are good people uh, person. So like, that's something that I think is a huge problem at co- in college basketball is these coaches are too loyal to some of their people, which is, is, is a good thing at, at, in times as well. And then the second is, Hey, you gotta, you gotta hire to your weaknesses and Penny hasn't done that. Yep. It's, and it's that way, like you said, in any industry, right? Like that, you see that in any industry, but you know, there's one as cutthroat as this one, you, you better be better about that as well. That's the weird part. What is the, I don't, I don't know the Rasheed Wallace situation. Like, is in like, I, I saw the news. Why did that happen? Is it a, when you say can't physically be with the team, do you, I mean, look, we're purely speculating here. Like we're just shooting this shit at this point. Like, is that, like Memphis decision, a Penny Hardaway decision, or is that some potential NCAA smoke? Like what, what went into that? I have no idea. And all it is, I think it'll come out at some point, but it just seems like anything that you read on it is probably rumor stuff at this point. I have no idea. I've, I've never heard of that before. Um, you know, I, you hear about medical stuff, medical leaves and stuff like that with assistants, but I haven't heard of somebody being in, because in my opinion, either just like, don't even have him do what's the point of a zoom consulting like just have him completely away from the program if he's not going to be a part of the program so it's that's a bizarre situation it really love is. to know the story on that what do you think they do do you think he gets fired at the end of this year they were down big to tulsa on sunday uh, a couple hours after we recorded that i recorded this or before we record recorded this excuse me but they came back and they had a two-point win. Look, Tulsa yet does not have a win in American Conference play. They're not very good. So, like, it's not a great win, but they did turn around and win a game. Like, do you – if it continues to trend this way, do you think they make a move this year? I don't know anything about Memphis's leadership. I don't know much about that administration. Yeah. I don't know much about it at all. Do you think he gets fired? I don't – you know, that's, that's the question there. And it depends on how they finish too, right? Like the American is not a super hard conference. They're more talented than most of the teams they play. Um, the thing that I will say that I found very interesting is after his apology, a lot of their fans were backing him up and talking about how stupid Calkins' question was. So from a fan support standpoint – you know, that's their golden child, right? And so I think his leash is always going to be a little bit longer than the average coaches because of his role with that program, you know, because of college, when he played in college. The last part that I never hit about the press conference itself, you have to be, in, like, really incompetent to turn the Memphis media market against you. Like, that was the most ridiculous part about all of it, that, like, that was the one thing I overlooked and didn't say earlier is, like, that's a notoriously Homer media market and to have them kind of turn on you or do something that could induce that is, is really difficult to do to the point where it was almost impressive. And then the last thing on that, like you said, like 
it's almost kind of surprising it took this long for the criticism to come. And then he just was totally unprepared for it when it got there, which is just, oh, the entire thing is bizarre to me. Last thing on the Memphis thing, what is that job versus what maybe like Memphis perceives it as? Like, do people in the industry view it as a good job? Because, you know, if you talk to Memphis people, you would think it's a, like a blue blood or something. Like they, that's not exactly rational interest, but how is that job actually viewed? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not viewed as a blue blood, but it's, a, it's still a very attractive job to a lot of people, right? I think their thing is they've kind of got a little bit of that Tennessee football into them and we're like, yep. you've got some fan expectations that are a little too unrealistic. But outside of that, I mean, I'm sure they're going to play this NIL game pretty strong. You've got a good brand. You play in an NBA arena. It's a fertile recruiting ground. It's still viewed as a pretty solid job. So, you know, if and when that opens up, I, I think the bigger thing for that job is who, and I don't know much about their athletic leadership, but who their leadership is, is going to be a, a, a thing for what kind of candidates they attract to. Um, that's another big thing with some of these jobs is, hey, is the AD going to be around for a while? You know, what, uh, how bought in are they? All that kind of stuff as well. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on Josh Pastner, but isn't that kind of the most accurate depiction of what that like program could be? I mean, yes, could it be better than what Pastner did? But like that seems more on par of what expectations should be is like slightly better than what Pastner was versus, I mean, seems like Calipari basically just kind of diluted any sense of rational expectation at that place. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, but they they've won before him too. Um, Finch and and uh, it was Barto there. I think that that's before my time. But um, they they've won before there as well. Um, and so, I I do think their ceiling is definitely bigger than Passner. But you're right, like kind of what the, it averages out is probably a little bit. Uh, their expectations should be a little bit better than what Passner's tenure was, but not you're not having Calipari, you know, coming in this thing. He's not coming back anytime soon, you know. Last thing before we get out of here, just kind of bouncing around the SEC. You had some great games yesterday, Kentucky, Auburn, Tennessee, uh, LSU. Anything that stuck out from the weekend or the week that was just going around the SEC is, uh, you know, you're starting to see kind of these conference standings take, like, you know, legitimate shape. But uh, anything stand out? Um, well, I mean, Auburn is just – what Bruce has done there is, is unreal. And I've gone back and forth so many times on, like, how I view him. But they had that thing rocking. And, like, they should have – you know, that wasn't an upset. This wasn't them upsetting Kentucky. And uh, he's doing a great job. I think Kentucky still looks good. Um, A&M this week, that A&M-Kentucky game was a good one. Um, they're a team that they, they probably needed that game to start feeling, you know, better about tournament stuff. but. They've looked good as well. Um, Tennessee, I can't figure out. In Arkansas, I can't figure out. You know, they haven't gelled to the ability that they should. Arkansas is playing a little bit better. Um, so those are the main things. LSU needs to get healthy quick. Uh, but one thing that's real interesting to me, you know, I was looking through the 14 teams. I can't remember a time like this early in the year where I looked at four different jobs and were like, those four jobs are for sure going to open up in the off season, or it seems highly likely. And that being, you know, Georgia, Missouri, South Carolina, and I mean, you would think Vanderbilt as well. 
So this offseason uh, could be pretty crazy. Um, I mean, and think about this. If State doesn't make it this year, that's one in seven for Howland. That's what I was about to say. State's playing well right now, credit to them. Like, right, they're four and two right. in the league. Their schedule's getting a little bit softer over the next week and a half. But like you said, there's those four jobs. And if Allen doesn't make it, like if that takes a down return because there's still tons of season left, that's a fifth one. Yeah, and right now they're 44th in the net, so they're kind of eh, right there. So they, they got to finish strong. But that could be a, there could be a lot of openings in the league, and that doesn't include what if LSU ends up getting popped by the NCAA. I mean, you could play this game with a few more schools as well. But, I mean, I think it just goes to show – this league has stepped it up um, from a competition standpoint. And, you know, there's going to be – it looks like maybe five or so jobs that are going to open up this offseason. Florida, Mike White's another one. They're, I think they've won back-to-back games. I think they went 2-0 this week. They kind of right the ship a little bit. They, you know, they beat – did they beat Mississippi State? No. Yeah, yes, I, think no, they they they, they, I think they, 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 I think they, they beat State. Out. So they started 0-3 yeah. and they've gone three in a row. They, they took care of Vanderbilt. But Mike White, like that thing was yeah. trending in the right direction early in the year. Isn't that, I mean, that's another one to at least keep an eye on if they don't finish the year well. It, it could. And the tough part about that, because that's one of the better jobs in the league, and obviously they won you know, back-to-back under Donovan. They're 34 in the net right now. Like I, I, I think they're going to get in the tournament. The thing that's – Florida is one of those jobs, though, that getting to the tournament isn't enough. Right. And so you have to, like, if they lose in the first round type deal, could that make his seat hot enough? I don't know. Like, I don't have a great read on that. But I think that's definitely maybe in, like, the next tier outside of those four um, that if things go, go south or, you know, postseason doesn't go far enough could potentially open as well. You're exactly correct in that because he's made the NCAA tournament every year he's been at Florida except the first. They went to the NIT the first year. Then he goes Elite Eight. Then he wins a game the next two years. And then you had the cancellation. And then he wins a game in 2021. Like he's, it's, it's, he's a, that's a weird tenure because it feels like they're not sold on him. But like you said, he's won a game every year he's gotten to the tournament. And it's not like there have been droughts where they've gone years missing the tournament. That's a, that's always, that, that seems like a strange relationship. How do you view Mike White? Yeah, that, it's a tough one. And the other thing to kind of add on to that is that wasn't a good job before Billy Donovan got there. So you've got one coach who's really done it. But outside of that, that wasn't a premier SEC job. You know, I, I thought he, I think he's done an okay job. But, I mean, it's, it, he's hard to evaluate from what he's done there, too. He lost some assistance this offseason that had coaching jobs. Um, and so I don't know you know, the, the guys that he brought in from a staff standpoint, how, how that's working out. Um, but I do think that that fan expectation is a lot higher than what they're reaching right now. They'd like to be, I think a good way to put them is they'd like to be a team that, um, you know, has a buy in the, has that double buy in the SEC tournament every year. So they, they want to be no less than top four in the league every year and make some runs in the NCAA tournament as well and I think he had a elite eight year but outside of that there hasn't been a ton there since he got there what do you make of Frank Martin at South Carolina because he has been there one two three four five six, seven eight nine this eight, is nine years yeah this is either his ninth or his tenth I believe um so that he has a final four and has not made the tournament in any other season that's right um now final four buys you a lot of time um <laughs> 
I think, you know, I think that one's probably done as well. I don't think they're going to bottom out. Like they're, they're, they're okay. Uh, they're not terrible. I think they may be like right at a hundred in the net or somewhere close to that. But I was under the impression that this last year, their administration wanted to make a move on him and the fans were the ones that got involved and didn't want it to happen. I kind of remember that believe, you say that. Believe it or not. So you kind of feel like this year that it's, it feels like it's probably time for him. Um, I think Frank's a really good coach and he's a phenomenal human as well, but they, he, his biggest issue similar to Ole Miss is they recruited at a pretty poor level there uh, with the exception of like one or two classes over his 10 years. And I think that that's kind of what's uh, been biting him in his tenure there. Last thing. Who's the – so outside of Auburn, who do you think the second-best team in the conference is? Because that seems like Auburn's on a tier of its own, and then you've got two, three-ish others that you could make a case for. Who do you think – who do you like most in this league besides Auburn? Uh, Kentucky, yeah. Bama hasn't figured it out yet. You know, LSU's got a, a healthy LSU could be there, um, but they're, they're not there as well. And then, I mean, I don't even know. I guess Tennessee or Arkansas maybe in that next category – I think we all had higher expectations for them. So I think it's Auburn and then it's Kentucky and then there's an, another gap uh, between those two. So Kentucky's kind of my, my pick right now. They're, they're pretty talented. Um, I wonder what that game would have been like if it was that rough. You could ask this question about any sport at Georgia when it's not going well, but good God, Tom Crean won. What the hell? Why, is, why, does, why do they not win? Do they, is it just simply a lack of care from the administration and boosters and all of that? that like, the fact that that's not a good job doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get asked this a lot. And um, another thing that people ask on that is, why can they not recruit Atlanta? Um, because you think, I mean, it's what, an hour, hour and a half Athens to Atlanta. And Atlanta is a got a ton of talent from a uh, basketball standpoint. And the one thing that I hear over and over again is that, you know, in football, Georgia kids want to go to Georgia. In basketball, Atlanta kids don't find Georgia basketball to be like this destination place. I don't know the reason for that and, you know, why that is, but that's been a pretty consistent thing that I've heard probably the past decade now. Their facility, Stegman's not great. They put some money into it and the Inside looks a little bit better, um, but it's, you know, it's probably a bottom four or five job in the league. And yeah, I, I think to your point, I mean, it's such a football focused school, um, but you know, Bama's figured out how to put resources and attention into basketball as well and even it out. So you'd think that Georgia could do that as well. They finally like righted the ship a bit in baseball too, but for all those years, it never made any sense to me why they sucked at baseball either. It's bizarre. That's a terrible situation though. They haven't won a game since December 20th. Is that the, is that a thing where it's like, do you think that situation like, does Crane get another head coaching job somewhere again? Like the, the, the bloom seems to be off that rose completely. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, yes, he could get another job at some point. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him go the analyst route because I think he's done that before. Um, so he had his run at Marquette with D Wade and then had some good years at Indiana as well. He doesn't relate to players from what I hear. Um, and I've also heard he's pretty miserable to work for as well. And those are two combinations that normally, um, don't go very far. Yeah. That seems like a tough combo, which is bizarre because he's actually kind of decent on TV and doing the analyst thing. Like, but that's, I'd always heard the same thing too. And it's like, 
like the world's biggest asshole, I guess, is kind of publicly, publicly charismatic, which I always found kind of fascinating. But um, should be an interesting year from a lot of standpoints. I didn't even think about the job at like the aspect of how many jobs could potentially open up. So uh, Bracken Ray, former old Andy Kennedy staffer, appreciate you joining us again, and we will holler at you next week. All right, have a good one. All right, that's our show. If you made it to the end, I really appreciate it. Thanks for making us a uh, part of your day and a part of the start of your week. We'll have uh, another podcast on Wednesday or Thursday. I haven't really decided yet. Got a couple couple ideas in the works there. And then, of course, Mailback Friday with some AFC and NFC championship picks on Friday. So be on the lookout. Got some newsletters coming this week as well. Appreciate the feedback on the Charlie Weiss story for those of you who uh, read it as well. So, anyway, have a great start to your week, and we'll holler at you uh, here in a couple of days. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.